Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business do just that. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and see if luck is a skill as I feel it is. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. Welcome to this week's episode of the Good Luck Cub podcast. This week, I have entrepreneur Chris Klein, co-founder and creative director of Climb Chow. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Yep, great to be here with you, or virtually. Well, um, I always like to start the podcast off by asking my guests, what does success mean to you? Uh, usually they reply money, right? <laughs> um, to me, success is... Uh, I think it's, um, I very much believe in happiness, okay? And I think that, uh, I don't believe in money. And I think that, uh, to me, money is just, uh, having money is just not having to worry. That's the luxury of money. So to me, success is um, finding what you love to do and pursuing it. That's success. I think if you find what you really love in life in terms of a career, and you're lucky enough to be able to actually make that your career, then you're successful. I love yeah, it. I think I'd sum it up like that. And maybe tell the audience a little bit about yourself. I mean, you've been in advertising for 35 years, to, so maybe you've ticked this box of finding what you love. Yeah, because um, I did have to find it. You know, I started out as a copywriter in a London advertising agency, but I didn't start out as a copywriter. I got into an agency through the mailroom. And, you know, because uh, I didn't have a path laid out for me and I wasn't given a lot of great career advice or anything like that. I just knew that I was creative at a young age, but I just wasn't given the right sort of guidance. So, and I kind of had a suspicion that advertising was where I wanted to go. It just looked like you know, what I'd be suited to. So I got into an agency in the mailroom and via the mailroom, I got into another department, which was like traffic and production. And then I was on the same floor as all the creative guys. So then I'm hanging out with the creative guys and I pop in every day because I'm delivering their mail or, or talking to them about, you know, artworks. And I could ask them what they do. So that's how I got a foot in the door. You know, I couldn't have done that without sort of going through that sort of process. And, and it all sort of like fell into place from there. I mean, I had to go after it, but that's how I did it and got in. So, and once I found it, I think I remember sitting in an office like the first time on my first day when they said, this is your new job as a copywriter it was the most incredible feeling in the world because suddenly I had a real career job in front of me. 
and and I had freedom and I they just wanted me to kind of do what I did that people used to tell me not to do which was like cracking jokes writing silly lines I mean all of this and suddenly that was my career and I think once I'd found that I just never looked back I remember once seeing an interview with Noel Gallagher of Oasis and he said because he went through, you know, they had this sort of how they got started and everything. And he was a roadie for the Inspiral Carpets, but he was writing songs and he was kind of um, also sort of had ambitions. And he said that once he got that guitar stuck on his back, that was it. He would never look back. He would never go anywhere else. He'd found it, what he wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, I think for me, that was it. I think once I was given, open that creative door and allowed to be creative and people were paying me to be creative, no looking back. And so to me, that's success already. How old were you when you went into the mailroom? And by the way, for my audience listening, um, some of them are young and I'm, a mailroom is not a room full of men. And a mailroom um, is an old, old concept where, you know, you have lots of letters in the room that get distributed through the, through the company. I think that they probably don't exist days. anymore. The email room, like the server doesn't exist anymore. But, but how old were you when, when, when you uh, entered the mailroom? I think I was about... 21 when I, when I'd gotten in there and um, I came from the building site literally I've been working as a laborer on construction sites because I needed money and uh, I come from a very big family and none of us went to college none of us but everyone found their path in life and so you know I worked on construction sites because I learned a really great hard work ethic working on construction sites. And actually, I did the work because I liked it. I, I wasn't doing it just to get money. I loved being outdoors. I loved lifting things. I loved getting fit. And I enjoyed just being around people, you know, in that world. But I knew that I had to find another career. I knew something inside of me told me I was destined for something else. And possibly it's because I was just always cracking jokes. And I was never serious. And I was always writing when I had a chance. So I knew I had to find something. So I had to get out of the construction site. I remember packing up my job. I just stopped going along. And I went to stay with a friend and slept on his couch in London for two weeks looking for a job without any college degree or anything. And I just did interviews. And, um, you know, eventually, and some of them, times I'd turn up for the interviews, they'd laugh at me, you know, in a film production company or because I just knew that I needed to be in that sort of world, but I didn't know how to get in. So when I got a job in the mailroom, and I was very polite, I was a nice looking, polite young lad. So a mailroom job wasn't that hard for me to get. And so they took me on. So I, was, I think I was about 21 by then. And I'd worked hard for a few years, laboring, you know, in different places amazing i want the listeners to also to understand uh, this you know so uh, chris is without doubt one of the most respected creative directors in asia in my view and i have worked and owned my own creative agency so i have some authority around this and uh, i just want to understand the story you know you're 21 years old you're working construction sites you you take this job in the mail room how does how does you know a, a english boy uh, coming from a construction work environment um, end up as in Hong Kong with with uh, with the reputation you have how, how did it how did this transition happen um, well I think once I started as a copywriter and I knew that I'd found what I was meant to do I also found out I was quite good at it 
And so I kind of rose up inside this London. It was a big respected London agency, one of the top agencies. And um, I was earmarked as a future talent with my art director, because you always work as an art director and a copywriter together. And I was sort of earmarked as, you know, ones to watch kind of thing. And I think coming from nowhere and having worked in construction, I learned how to work hard. Now, I really learned that you only get somewhere by, by actually grafting and sitting down. And I don't think I was the most talented creative. I mean, I, there were people sort of rose a lot quicker than me, but I knew I had something and that with hard work and also a fear of failure. You know, I had a lot of pride. I did not want people to sort of say that you're not cutting it or whatever. So I worked really hard. And then uh, I got sent to Chicago very, after about one year uh, for six weeks as an intern with the agency's Chicago office, the head office. And I loved, I just loved it. I was, you know, English and, you know, you go over to the US and, and they love hearing your accent. So you kind of play that up. Um, but being in that world, it, it wasn't Madison Avenue, but it was kind of next best thing. Being in that world, you're with big people in a grown-up world, and it really was the big agency world. And my hunger for what I was doing just increased. I also got a lot of compliments, got recognized, and so I thought, okay, I, I seem to be pretty good at this, and I got more confidence. So after six weeks of that, mingling with people from all over the world, I, I became more confident. And so I think then, you know, my career, I was with the London agency for about seven years as a, as a copywriter and did some quite good work, you know, sort of had quite a good portfolio because as an agency creative, you're only as good as your book, as your portfolio. It's got nothing to do with what's in your CV. And that's what I loved about it was they didn't, no one really looked at my CV and said, well, where did you go to university? You know, what was in my book was me. And I'd done some okay work, some pretty good work. And I was in the agency at a time when it was going through a bit of a creative evolution. So for being a kind of middle-of-the-road giant agency to having some very tough, respected creative people come in at a high level. And thankfully, they, you know, I mean, I remember some stages where people were let go, they were culling or they'd lose a big account. I never was. Thankfully, they kind of, these guys looked at me and thought I had something too. So, yeah, I just kind of pursued it until after about seven years, um, I had quite a good portfolio. And, uh, you know, we were looking around some other agencies. You feel about moving on and that sort of thing. Um, but I had this kind of weird moment that took me to Hong Kong. And it, this is in the uh, sort of mid to late 80s. In those days in an agency in London, you wouldn't dream of going to Hong Kong if you were creatively ambitious because it was just somewhere you'd never heard. I mean, you'd heard of it, but in the creative environment, it's not even considered on the, on the map. So you, you, I, I wouldn't even think about it. Um, but I, I remember I was in a bookshop in Hampstead and I was flicking through books and I picked up a copy of The World of Susie Wong. And I don't know why I bought it. It was a secondhand copy. I just remember it as be, being an old movie that I used to watch, you know, on Sunday afternoons at home. So I thought, okay. So I bought it, read it, didn't think much about it. About three months later, I had a phone call from a headhunter and she said, um, you know, can we talk? And my art director was there, and I sort of went, um, okay. And she said, how would you like to go to Hong Kong? And I thought, uh, can I call you back later? You know, so 
I had a chat with her and she said, look, there's a guy coming to London. He was uh, the regional creative director for a big London, big Hong Kong a- agency. Would you like to see him? So it was at a time when I just finished a relationship, just bought a flat, wasn't really kind of settled. But I think the book put this seed of romance in my head. And I thought, okay. So I went to meet this guy who was the regional creative director and he looked at my work and he said to me, well, I have to say that your work compares favorably with uh, some of the portfolios I've seen. We normally fly people out for a week to see what they make of it, you know. And so, I mean, I just couldn't turn that down. Week in Hong Kong, everything paid. So I said, okay, I'll come out. I came out, fell in love with it instantly, immediately. And it was just my sense of adventure. And, um, and that was it. I mean, I just kind of knew. And when I went back and told people and said, well, I think I'm going to go to Hong Kong, most of the creative snobs in London were like, are you mad? What are you thinking about? You know, because I, mean, I was mingling with pretty top dogs. And I just said, well, I just feel like going to see the world, you know. And I was having a pint with a friend in um, some nice little pub somewhere in uh, sort of uh, North London. And we sat there. And he was a good, he was also in a top agency. He said, the thing about it is, what you've got to think about is, what are you doing with your life right now? Not your career. Put your life first. And that was it. I just accepted the job. And I came out. And I hit the ground running. You know, I got out here. I was in the top, one of the top two creative agencies in Hong Kong. And I came out. And there was a lot of talk about me before I came. That I was someone that, you know, they said we found this good guy. So I I was just full of it. I, I was 18 years old all over again. And I was full of myself. And I knew I was going to succeed. And yeah, I just never looked back. Wasn't a mistake, put it like that. I think for anyone listening, if you haven't been to Hong Kong, you absolutely have to go because you're talking about experience in the late 80s that I think is still very relevant today. You go there and it still blows minds, right? It's still got an energy that's like nothing else on this planet, in my view. But tell me about the startup and creative industry when you arrived in the 80s till now. Has, has has the landscape changed much? Do you, do you see good or, you know, is it worse or better? In Hong Kong? Yes. In Hong Kong. Uh, it's worse, I would say. But I think that's partly because the industry itself has evolved. It's not the same industry as it was, say, 25 years ago, um, 30 years ago. Uh, then it was still a very old-fashioned creative industry. And the agencies inside and the way that they worked were not dissimilar to what I'd been used to in London. And of course, the work was like that too. So you had above the line, you had below the line. Above the line was anything traditional like posters, TV, print ads. Below the line was direct mail. And so that has completely changed with technology. We no longer think that way. To me, below the line was alien. And guys did did below the line were from another planet and they taught a different language. I was an above the line copywriter. So I was writing headlines for ads and I was writing TV scripts and radio scripts, you know. And um, but once I got to Hong Kong, what was slightly different was that you actually mingled it all in. You did everything. So I quickly sort of learned that I'd be writing brochures and I'd be writing, you know, sort of um, directories and uh, direct mail and, and, and so on. Um, but it was also a time in Hong Kong when there were some pretty good people here who brought their disciplines with them. Uh, from from other sort of uh, cities and some pretty good creative guys. And the standard of work 
wasn't bad. And that's the thing that drew me here because when the creative director showed me their showreel, I thought, wow, actually, it's not what I thought it would be. There were some pretty good TV production values. And I thought, if I can bring my enthusiasm and I've got availability, I've got access to good directors, there's no reason why you can't do good ideas and do it anywhere. So the standard of work was interesting. It was also, um, I would say, very much influenced by Western advertising, whether from US, UK, Australia, maybe, because those are the guys that were in the top creative jobs. And uh, so they were sort of teaching uh, the younger generation, local generation, the ropes, strategy, how to write a brief, how to answer a brief. Um, but it was an interesting time because, and I, and I wrote a book about this. I've, I've written a book which is called Made in Hong Kong, which is about those days. But it's also about the evolution. What I saw coming through, and it was a very interesting time to arrive, was um, a young generation of local creatives who were learning their ropes, and then they were using their own experiences, their own culture, and doing ideas from their own perspective, and in a more Chinese way. And I would say from about 87, 88, late, late 80s, through till about mid 90s, some of the best advertising in Hong Kong ever was created during that time. And as that, the, the generations came through of like the local creatives, and I grew up with these guys and ladies, um, the work got much more interesting and more local until there was a period, I would say, from sort of mid-90s up to about 2000, when yeah, some of the best Hong Kong advertising was done then. It was uniquely Hong Kong, uniquely Cantonese. It was humorous. It was, uh, you know, it was ideas-driven. Uh, some brilliant work was done then. And I used to look at it, and I did some okay work myself in my early years, and some of that work was recognized and, and well-known and famous. But I used to look at the local work and think, I couldn't do that. You know, those ideas are so uniquely local. So my role sort of became more, as I, as I rose up and I was uh, an executive creative director and a regional creative director, was, was getting that kind of work out of local guys. And I'd be the guide. I was their shepherd, you know, to sort of give them the right sort of briefs, the right strategies, and letting them think of their own ideas. Um, so it was a fascinating time. And I think that, um, you know, I would say from 2000 sort of onwards, the industry evolved and the industry changed and technology became important and digital was the thing that everyone talked about. Uh, so I would say today's Hong Kong advertising is very wishy-washy, as it is in a lot of cities, actually. If you go to most major cities, what you see around you every day is pretty banal wallpaper. You know, if you use outdoor as a benchmark, uh, you seldom see something that catches your eye. And I know from social media that some of the more sort of uh, old school sort of creatives in London talk the same way and say, why don't we do good work anymore? You know, why don't we do great ads? And if you're watching TV every day, you, you know, every now and then you might catch something half good, but not in the way that it was in the sort of 70s and 80s. So I think it's changed everywhere. Hong Kong is the same. And um, I think the way we work is different now and the way our agency is shaped up is different. You know, we still... I still keep the same principles that we must be driven by ideas. So we try to always steer our clients towards a single-minded proposition and build ideas around it. Um, and that, that's in any channel, whether that's on TV, doing an online film, or whether that is in social media. The brand, the core brand DNA and proposition should be 
at the heart of everything. That's not changed to me. It's just that you, the way I look at digital is that it's just another set of tools in the toolkit. I don't think we live in a digital world. And technology is not the thing that drives what we do. It's just how we do it. Um, but to me, ideas are still, creativity is still the most important thing. Yeah, I, I hear you. I feel like um, a lot of the creative is now outsourced to influence for influencers, for example, right? The whole, you know, let, let's just give them our, our, our product and they'll do the marketing for us as, as opposed to the original. And I still think relevant, like you say, brand DNA piece, which is, 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 is fascinating and getting a bit overlooked. But I mean, let's just talk, first of all, made in Hong Kong. I'll put a link to it in uh, in Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube, wherever where you're listening to this podcast today, so you can actually click and 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 see um, uh, Chris's book. I think um, just ten years ago, you started to work for yourself, your own agency. So tell us a little bit about how that came about and and why why do your own agency? Sounds like you know you had you had the fame and the name uh, behind you. Why, why do your own business? Um, it wasn't the first time I'd had a stab at it, but one of the important things when you do your own agency, I'm sure you've got stories to tell on this, is your partners. You've got to have the right partners to do it. And uh, you've got to know each other inside out and you've got to be able to work together on a day-to-day basis. I had a stab earlier on that didn't quite work out for whatever reasons. And I'd spent five years as a partner in another small independent agency. Um, And that was good, actually. It was very good. But we reached a point after five years where I felt it was time to move on. And um, the name of our agency, Kaim Chow, existed already because I'd registered it for other purposes. Like when I was doing public speaking, I'd be judging in awards. If I got paid for things I was doing elsewhere... Um, that was just a kind of a, a, a holding sort of company name. And so I started the agency with my wife, and she's from a background of PR, corporate communications. And, you know, we'd had a son, and he was kind of getting a bit older. He was going to school. And the thing is, I think when creative is in your heart, you really want to pursue what is true to your heart. And I, there's a song by U2, which was, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think I hadn't quite found what I was looking for. And I wanted the purity of that uh, as a creative director. I'd been doing it long enough that I knew what I thought was good and not good. I didn't need someone to tell me what is good and not good. And I wanted to find out if I was any good, really. Um, And I think there's another thing which is to, you know, I would say you haven't asked this question, but what makes me get up every morning and drives me is I've always thought, I'm not good enough. I think maybe because I came from that background, I did. I've always thought one day I'm going to get found out. And that's a great feeling. And I think it's a great driving factor. And I just, you know, wanted to find out if, you know, I was as good as I thought I was. I think the other thing is, and it also comes from having an early life lifting bricks and lifting cement, was I've never been afraid to go back to square one. So whenever I'd reached a top position in my career, I've always left and gone back to start again. And that is also something which keeps you going and is a driving factor. So at one point, I was a regional creative director for a big global international agency in Asia. And I left that job to go back to square one. 
And people were saying, well, you're mad. You know, I mean, it's what's the best job you can get to. And But I've always thought there's nothing after that. Once you've reached that job, then you can become complacent. You know, you get a lot of privileges and you're sort of calling the shots. But what's next? What comes after that? And I think this is something that drives a lot of creative people to go and start their own agency. They reach that position and they think, I need to find out more, you know. And you go back to square one. I'm not afraid to write. I'm not afraid to make my own drinks. I'm not afraid to, you know, to lift things um, and go back to square one and start again. So I would add to that that I've never been fired ever from a job because I've always been the one to move on before that ever happened. But that doesn't mean to say it wouldn't have happened. It might have been on the cards at some point, but it's never happened. And I've always been the one to move on. So I think thinking ahead, thinking where do I want to be five years from now is another thing that drives you on and not being complacent. Just enjoying your insights, sitting back, enjoying the podcast myself for a second there, Chris. Uh, thinking ahead is such an uh, important point for people to realize as well. I think this going back to square one thing is also interesting. Just, I always try to give the uh, listeners you know, an insight to success and failure. So I wonder, you mentioned earlier the first partnership didn't work out. I mean, what were your lessons? Of course, you probably don't want to name names, but what were your lessons you know, from the previous let's call it an uh, experiment in, in being self-employed and then the second version, which has worked. Um, what, what, what were your learnings between the two for, for listeners out there that perhaps want to learn from your mistakes? Um, um, I, I think, by the way, you, I know that you probably relate to quite a lot of this, Simon, because I know I that you've achieved quite a lot in you know, your considerable sort of young age. Well, it's, yeah, I, um, just to mention, and the imposter syndrome thing, I mean, I didn't have your credentials to come up through the ranks in the agency world. I just went straight into the agency world, literally previously owning a, a, a courier company, having nothing to do with the agency world. So I had imposter syndrome for the whole time I owned that business, right up until I sold it to PwC. You know, I always felt like I was an outsider. I, I wasn't one of the, you know, the the institutional people. So it's interesting to hear you say uh, uh, imposter syndrome uh, point, I think, yeah. Yeah, I do relate to it. Yeah, because I, I just think it's a great driving factor, you know, that you, you you know that you've got to work a bit harder than the next guy, right? You've got to prove and yourself. I've seen yeah, people, a lot of people see it as a negative. I think imposter syndrome, they see it as a negative. Actually, I completely agree with your point. It's actually a motivator. I wanted to prove I could do it because people think that I'm the outsider or couldn't do it. And that same, you know, same, you were a bricklayer that was in this high-flying industry suddenly, you know, and you had to prove to yourself probably um, that you could do it. That's right. And I also think that I've seen people better qualified than me with better sort of uh, privileges laid down who've not made it because maybe they didn't have that hard work ethic, you know. The world is littered with talented Um, people that don't make it, yeah. uh, So I I think that um, the first time I sort of had a stab at sort of starting something, um, it was just a sort of one or two person sort of set up. Um, I just didn't know my partner uh, as well as I thought. Someone I've worked with before, but it's very different when you're getting into bed in, in starting something up and warts and all and everything. And it was just a case of, yeah, I, I thought I knew someone and I didn't. And I found that I couldn't be myself. You know, the reason for starting an agency is to, or start your own business is you want to be yourself, be true to your heart and find out what you're made of uh, without any inhibitions. When I worked in big network agencies, um, it's not always pure because you're governed by their own global sort of um, network and their global principles and their rules and regulations. And you have to sing their song. You know, so, I mean, I used to be showing a regional show reel 
and showing other people's work and maybe not all of it was that great and kind of but you're playing that role uh, so it's not so pure but when you do your own thing it's you you know f success or failure it's down to you you can't blame it on anyone else or credit anyone else so you you need to find out you know what you're made of so i couldn't be myself that was it that's why it just didn't work out and i thought i can't do this i can't come in and lie and you know, sort of pretend that I'm sort of okay with things that I'm not, and so on. And so I thought, okay, fair enough. Hardest thing was, for me, was I'd, I'd done it quite publicly, started up quite publicly, media articles and everything. So to pull out of that and kind of like a little bit tail between the legs and get back in again was a really tough decision, very hard, because I just didn't want to say, admit that was a failure. Um, and so I had pretty quickly had to go back to square one and think, what do I do next? And, um, yeah, I, I guess that I, I did sort of find my path again. But I wasn't afraid to do it. I just knew I had to do it. I think you're making a really interesting point here that I want the audience to pick up on, which is sometimes you have to swallow your ego or, you know, and, and let go of what the image is and what your life is. The two things aren't always correlated, right? So I think what you're saying there, uh, in part that you know you you took a you had to quit something that you'd put your name to that the image out there in the market was it was successful and it was doing well, yet you weren't happy, and that's a big challenge for people that I think everyone should do, but not everyone does. I mean, you see people in jobs they hate and they act like it's great by posting pictures on Instagram or whatever how wonderful life is, but they actually hate what they do, right? So that takes real grit to quit and, and do that when you did that that must have been that must have been a very scary moment you kind of said it then but it must have been a very scary moment uh it, it wasn't scary it was a bit i've never been depressed i'm not a depressed sort of person um but it was yes it was tough and i had to think really carefully strategically where do i go from here but the thing is i just knew what i was made of i know what i'm made of i know i could sit down tomorrow with a blank piece of paper and do it and so I hadn't gotten anywhere by favors, by privilege, by, I just know that what I have inside of me has been proven to be good. So I could do it again and I could go back and do it again. And I did. And, and, and the learning, I'm, I just want to pull out for the audience there, the learning, you know, not knowing your partner. I've had the same experience, by the way. Is there some way that anyone out there listening that's getting into business with someone, is there any way to actually really know someone i mean for example I, I i my own brother i fell out with my own brother in business and found out who he really was my own brother i grew up with this person you know like I, I i didn't think i could know them any better until i got into business with them and realized that their moral code was different to mine and so on like how how do you find out about someone is the only way to just jump in and get into business or is another way um, I, I just think you've got to know beforehand. You've got to know someone really, really well before you do that together. Because, you, you know, it's a different scenario when you're actually your owners together and you've got much more to lose together. It brings out different characteristics of the person you thought you knew and you start to see things that you didn't see before. So the only way is to sort of is to know them really, really well. You've got to have been through the ringer with someone and know them really well in order to, to start. It's just advice, I would say. I don't think, you know, if, if it's someone that you've met and you think that, that you get on and you've got the same ideas and everything else, 
you just can't tell if that's going to work or not because you find it's a bit like when you you know when you get married i mean how do you know you're choosing the right partner um and uh just because you've been dating for six months you know um there's there's no telling you've got to really know someone and feel completely comfortable before you you make that leap and it's not always that easy to make it work because you find things out about each other as life goes on you know one year two years and so you know it's the same sort of thing marriage is the best example i would say but even marriage i actually think working together is 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 even harder than marriage i would argue because I think the, the money dynamic, for example, when you are in fact two separate lives and the, your partner of your partner influences your life, right? So, I mean, what I always say to people is know the partner of your partner. That will give you a good indication about that person. And I also think you have to have difficult conversations about effort and money. You know, I, that, that, those are the things like my work ethic, you know, and, and my brother will probably be listening to this podcast. My my work ethic is different, not necessarily better or worse, different to to my brothers, and so you know, I, and I think that became a problem. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I always think about what a checklist is. Maybe this is something we could work on together that might help people out there um, decide on a, on a partner. I've actually just produced a video about it myself, you know, 10 steps you can perhaps consider when getting a partner. But it's really hard. I mean, even in your, you're now in business with your wife, right? I mean, that also, um, you know, to your point about marriage, it's, it is a different thing, right? Yeah, it presents, that presents new challenges. And, uh, and I've, I've read up a lot on this because I was just curious other people's experiences. And some people say, look, one thing has to give either the marriage or the working partnership. You know, it's, it's hard to make that work together. I mean, we've been doing it 10 years now, and I think we've found our happy medium. Um, but, uh, I mean, just to give some examples of, of that, it's very hard to leave work at work and home at home when you're working together and you're married and we found a way to sort of do that but in the beginning there was a lot of learning curve and everything else the other thing is how you are together is different at home i'm a complete pushover i would do anything i'm told to do because i'm pretty easy going and i don't have any you know sort of particular ways of doing this or that and so i'm very easy to sort of uh, to instruct me at home at work that's a hundred percent different if I'm, if I'm a creative director and I'm doing this and I believe in my decisions, I've got to be absolutely resolute. You can't be wishy-washy. That's not to say that I always put forward ideas from other people that is always what I like, but it's what I know is right, or I've got a feeling that it's right. And, but even when I was in big agencies, I only had, I didn't really care that much about money. I just had one thing that I stipulated, which is I have to have final say on creative. I have to. Otherwise, I can't do this job. It's not a democratic process. Um, what I say goes. And I, I always made that sort of uh, my you know, requirement. Now, when you're working together with your wife, that's, that's different because she knows you inside out. And she might be going, well, you, know, you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it this way. And so arguments come up because you know, it's like you're at home and you're, and you're at work. Um, in the end, we found our way because I just can't back down. I listen to people. I'm not saying I'm that stubborn and I don't listen to people. But I form my, base my decisions on what I've heard and what I've seen and what I think. Um, but I can't be told to do something this way. I can't drive the car and have someone behind me telling me how I should be driving the car. Businesses, you know, are, so, not, businesses are not democracies, are they? That's the bottom line. They, they could, just couldn't easily be operated if they were. Yeah, well, I, I think people also should have their very fixed roles. 
I mean, that's how a partnership works anyway. I mean, the classic model for uh, traditional agencies, creative agencies, was always that you would have a creative director, the uh, account servicing guy who looks after the clients, the media guy who books and plans all the media, and the finance guy. That's the classic partnership. I say guy, you know, men or women. But those were the partners that would form an agency, and everyone sticks to their roles. Other people don't try and do the other person's job. That's how the machine works, you know. And so, so, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated when you're working together and you're married. But we found a way, and now we, we do make it work, and we, um, you know, sort of uh, definitely have people around us that when we respect our roles. Uh, but it's not the easiest thing, yeah. I, I worked for 10 years with my partner too, so I, I, can under, I can understand there's some experience here. I think the key is also an element of, like, very clear job roles, you know, and who's responsible for what and um, being able to rely on each other for those areas and, and not have to micromanage each other. <laughs> well, I mean, a cl- a classic clear example to me is, uh, as I say, I'm not really, a, I, I don't get turned on by my talking money. I mean, I think I'm quite good at pulling money in because I can sell ideas. I'm very good at selling ideas, um, particularly if I believe in them and I think they're really, really right. Um, I can get clients to spend money but what happens to that money afterwards? I mean, I'm just not that interested. So my wife is brilliant at managing money. I'm very careful about managing money and knows how to manage the finances of the agency. And not only that, I trust her, you know, 100% because we have our the same interests. So in that sense, it works brilliantly. Mm. I would yeah, say. I, I agree. I would also add that, you know, in my agency, I, my partner was a creative director so I don't have that, but I was the marketing person, the front end person. And then we hired a really good accountant because <laughs> neither of us cared about the money. So there's, there's always got to be someone that cares about the money. <laughs> you've got to have that. Yeah, you've got to have that totally. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred? Born. Born. It doesn't, I, sound, like, it doesn't I, sound like you were born an entrepreneur, just your path up until 10 years ago when you started your own business. I would not have necessarily uh, described it. Yeah, I've, I've heard this before, this question, this, this thought before. Um, and I, I think that you might be born and then, you know, with those kind of like genetic qualities. You just don't know it. You find out later on that you are. But what I mean by that is I think it's in you. There's certain characteristics and I reckon that you and I probably have a lot in common um, in, in that sense. There are certain characteristics that make you want to go and do it, right? And there are other people who really want to have a nine-to-five job and go home every day and not have any hassle because you take on a lot when you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you're taking on responsibilities, challenges, I mean, all of this kind of stuff. It's got to be what turns you on and, you know, why you want to get up in the morning. I don't think I could ever have been in a 95 kind of person. So even though I, I was, you know, most spent half my career in big agencies as an employee, it was never nine to five job. It wasn't because I didn't do it because I wanted an easy life. I never wanted that kind of just comfort, you know, and you sort of stay within that zone your whole career until you retire. So in that sense, I think it's the characteristics that make you, an entrepreneur, you know. So I, I don't think you can train someone to be like that. Uh, you can train them to be good. You know, you can give them everything it takes to be sort of good. But at some point, there are things that kick in that are just in you. Is your wife an entrepreneur? 
not by nature, I would say, not by nature, but she had enough faith and trust in me um, to, to want to sort of do this with me and build it around me as a creative director. Uh, and because we were married so long before we did it, I mean, that, that trust was there. Um, it may not have been something she had done in the course of her career. I mean, she stopped her career to become a mum and everything. Um, but uh, she was definitely a career kind of person. Uh, and she was, you know, she'd had some pretty good positions in sort of also in big international companies. Um, she may not have been the kind of person that would go out and start her own thing, I think. But at that time when we did it, you know, I, she, she backed me. She definitely sort of believed enough in what I'd done to support it and be a part of it. I think that's another way to, for people to go. Any listeners out there that don't think they're entrepreneurs, you might have a skill set and you can team up with an entrepreneur uh, and, and still end up owning your own business. Yeah, it's a bit like um, somebody who manages someone. I mean, if you think about the entertainment world, you know, or even like these days in football, uh, you know, you as a manager, as a really, really sort of good manager, a lot of qualities, it's not just about managing money, but you've got to believe in someone and say, I'm going to put all my money on this person, you know, and believe in this person, uh, particularly like in entertainment, if you look at music. Someone, you know, um, who discovered the Beatles or discovered Oasis, you know, they must have seen something and said, right, I know, we're going to bet on this. They've got something. And I think it's a similar kind of thing. You don't, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily adventurous by nature yourself. Probably you're the opposite. Um, but you're definitely sort of, backing someone or backing something and that in itself is means that you could go out there and do it yeah i actually think that's a good analogy as well for angel investing that's actually why i angel invest in businesses because i believe in the people that are running those businesses people always say what sector do you focus on or you know what's the growth opportunity and i say people (laughs) you know and and so that's what angel investing is a bit like that you know football manager analogy you know, maybe I'm not young enough to uh, play football anymore. <laughs> so I back footballers, but I know what a good footballer looks like, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. I think that's another path for people. Do you feel, um, it, you know, how do you feel about the concept of luck? Do you feel you've had luck has played a role in your life and, and, and has bad luck had any role in your life? Um, no, actually, I don't. I don't think that I can't think of any any time or pivotal point where I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. I think that um, I believe that that old idea that you create your own luck, hard work, taking opportunities when they come along. Um, it's absolutely about. There's nothing I ever had achieved at a stage that came along by luck. It was always because I'd gone after it even though I've been told I couldn't or I I wouldn't make it or whatever. I I just think that um, you just have to work hard and believe in yourself and you create your own luck. I remember when I was younger, I used to walk around the streets thinking that I was going to come across a £10 note. And I used to always looking at the side of pavements and everything, thinking, you know, you see all the bits of paper and think, I'm going to come across money. And it never happened. And then, you know, I was in my teens, I used to, I wanted a nicer car. I wanted, a, I wanted a car. And I thought, well, some days I'm going to be a, an obscure uncle's going to come along going, yeah, I'm getting rid of my car. Why don't you have it? You know, ne- Never, ever happened. And it was the same with finding a career. I remember being on the construction site and thinking, you know, I used to 
desperately want to find a way out and find what I really wanted to do. And I think someone's going to call up and go, hey, there's an opening here. They want you. It never happened. I absolutely had to go after everything myself at every single stage of my career. But I think it was a combination of seeing an opportunity and taking it and working hard at it when it came along. So everything I've ever done has come down to that. It's never been about luck. I, I think luck to me in, in the creative industry is, is the right client buying the right work at the right time. That's the only thing I would say is, is luck. Because, you know, when you're building your agency portfolio, um, you're only as good as your work. And, you know, we present loads of ideas to clients all the time. Whether or not a client will buy something good is luck. I really believe that. So we've had some success with some quite nice work. And I would just say we were lucky that that person was in the room at that moment when we showed the work. Because I've seen so many good ideas that bite the dust because the wrong person was on the other side of the table. And as hard as I can, can try to sell in a good idea, it's luck whether they buy it or not. That's the only luck I could cite in my career. It's interesting, the subject of luck and uh... Um, it's it, it can actually open up a whole can of worms because really in the statement there you've said luck doesn't really exist yet it does it's interesting isn't it i think i think that what what, what you've reinforced uh, is, is for me is my belief that the dictionary needs an update there's two types of luck there's the the random luck and then the luck you make happen for yourself right yeah i mean i i would cite that as being the only case where i could say luck has played a role in my career you know it's that you can't make clients accept good work it's just whether or not it's the right person. That's the only thing I can think of. But in terms of career advancement, um, career path, all of that, I can't think of any time when I've been lucky. I can hear my listeners um, starting to type comments like, well, you were born in England, you know, weren't you lucky? You were, you were born white and male, weren't you lucky? You know, there's things that were out of your control that are probably... Uh, especially in the early days of the ad agency, that was definitely a profile. And so, you know, I think that uh, people would argue that was luck. Uh, circumstance, I don't know about luck, but then you look at it another way. I had really basic education, didn't go to college. I had nothing laid out in front of me and I was working on building sites. I could have spent my whole, and every time I went for job interviews, I was kind of looked down on, sneered at. You know, because I just wasn't worldly. I just didn't have that sort of worldwide sort of education in me. I just thought I was talented. Um, I could easily have spent my entire life in construction as a, you know, doing laboring work and that kind of thing. So whether I was white or not, I had nothing to do with it, I don't think. When I went for that job interview as a mailroom messenger, I had nothing to do with my color. It was a bog standard basic job. It required no qualifications at all. I just had to be able to deliver mail. That's all. So I don't think it's got anything to do with my race or, um, you know, that I was privileged in any way. I had nothing to get me started, but the most basic. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't agree. Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. I've known your name for two decades from the time that I lived in Hong Kong. And one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I never actually knew, it's not on your LinkedIn, this background about where you came from, because it, it does change the dynamic of it all. Because all I ever heard about when I was setting up my own agency was the competition. <laughs> and you were one of them and this talented group of people, which you were one of them that we were up against. 
And so, you know, all I really heard was your, was your creds in the agency world. And so it's really refreshing for me. And I hope the listeners also uh, enjoy it that, you know, you can come from that background, like you say, where, you know, your education is minimal. So was mine. You can come from that place of, you know, hard work and figuring out what you want and then find your luck, which is what you're, you know, what you're talking about, I think. I, I, I think actually, I think, you know, one of the best aspects, I think where I was fortunate was to actually have to work hard to get some money. If I didn't go and work hard, no one would have given me anything. I remember one time, a real low, it was winter. I'd been laboring over in Europe and uh, I'd just come back. I was staying at my brother's place and I was eating instant mashed potato and tin soup because that's all I could afford. And I would make the soup thicker than it needed to be. So it was a bit more substantial. And I just thought, I'm going to get out of this somehow. And I just didn't. And the only way I could do it was to get a job, go and dig holes, you know, and shovel whatever and get money and start building up money until I had enough money to buy a car and a car I could get around, you know. And, and so it's like that. So I think that hard work ethic was probably the best thing that happened to me. Maybe if I'd gone to university, I don't know, maybe I would have not been so hardworking. Maybe I would have been a bit sort of more complacent, uh, believed in, you know, I had a right to everything, but I didn't. I just always thought I wasn't good enough. I absolutely concur. I think the hunger piece is so important, the follow-through, the persistence. But what about for your children today? How do you feel about education for them? Um, it's natural as a parent that you want, you know, and every parent wants their kid to sort of to do well and sort of uh, um, just have the best start in life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, we don't we don't put any pressure. I've got a son. We don't put any pressure on him. He's got to succeed one way or another. I want him to be happy. However, I, I give guidance. I just think, well, okay, at least he can get a better start than I did. Um, you know, and at least he can get sort of. Um, you know, sort of uh, the best basics in place, but we don't push him and sort of um, particularly, I don't think qualifications necessarily make or break your, your future career. Um, I just want him to be happy. So if, if pushing for education makes him unhappy, then I would step back from it. Um, but I want him to find his path and find his own success, whatever that is, whatever he wants to do. And I have no idea in my mind or, his mind yet what that would be um so i think that i can draw on my own one thing that we both instill in him because my wife had, you know similar to me had to really work hard herself and by the way she's not white and didn't grow up in england but she still had to find her own way and um and get her education uh was that we both had to work hard and so we both agree on this and we instill that in him we don't want him to feel privileged or have it too easy yeah it's a difficult balance to get as someone with a three-year-old i um you know i i struggle with it because i can see a piece of me like you say you want to have a, a a better start than you but i would argue your your hard start and my hard start were actually good for us because we learned what we don't like as well you know we learn we right we don't want this environment how am i going to get myself out of this so there's that fine balance to get isn't it yeah i think also if you if you believe in yourself if you're true to yourself i mean I used to get loads of people telling me what I couldn't do. And, you know, when I said I want to try and get to do this and do that, I would be laughed at, particularly on the construction side. 
you know, I said, I want to go off and sort of fight. They would just laugh at me. And I had so many people telling me what I couldn't do. And every time I heard that, it made me want to do it even more because it was just inside of me. I just knew it was there. Yeah, I love it. Well, I could talk to you all day. Uh, Chris so I, I think um, I'll have you back on and we'll talk more about branding we could talk about um, strategy all of these things I think uh, entrepreneurs out there would love to hear your insights and knowledge on that so maybe I'll have you back on but I'd like to end the podcast really with this um, one final more light-hearted question which is if you went back to your younger self and gave advice what would it be be an actor be an actor because when I was young, I, was, I just had something. I could write skits. I could act about the age of 10 or 11 at school. No one ever told me that I could be an actor. When I look back now, and I've done some since, but when I look back, I definitely could have done it. I didn't know that at the time. I'm lucky I found my career, but that's what I'd say to my younger self. Go and be an actor. I, um, I've just seen a parallel universe where I'm now interviewing, you know, the equivalent of Robert De Niro and uh, he's telling me about his acting career, how he worked on a building <laughs> site not. and then, uh, you know, <laughs> gave up that building site job to go and work in a theatre. Anyway, so parallel universe out there right now. You just went back and uh, gave yourself a whole new experience. Great. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Look, I'm going to sum up what I've taken uh, from, from the podcast today and, and part of me sat back for 20 minutes and just enjoyed it. So I forgot to make notes because I was enjoying it so much. But here's, here's, my, uh, here's my quick take. Become self-employed. So you can be yourself. I think that's a really interesting point and something I've not said to people in the past and I think is actually very true. Um, Universal listen, if you uh, put it out there, so maybe, um, you know, read Susie Wong. You could end up in Hong Kong, but, you know, maybe think about that. Ask the universe what you want. Think ahead is so true. I think that never getting fired point linking to like thinking ahead is, is a really interesting thing that I think not enough people think ahead. Um, and, you know, I've kind of got this song in my head, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for, which uh, thank you for that. That's been going on in my head the whole podcast. And, and I absolutely think that people just keep having to search for that thing. And you found it by working on a construction site, working in the mailroom, and eventually uh, discovering it. So it's a process. So I think for a lot of people, they put a lot, of, a lot of pressure on themselves to find it now. They don't start something until it is that thing. And I think, you know, the insight I take from you and I know for myself to be true as well is that it's a journey and you'll find it, but you have to take some steps um, that don't seem obviously the thing you're meant to be doing. And don't I think one important message for maybe for your listeners is believe in yourself. Yeah, totally. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. That was my closing statement and my, my takeaway from you at the end there. You know, be true to yourself is how you put it earlier. And uh, mm. I absolutely agree with that, Chris. I, I thank you for sharing your insight and knowledge. And I hope the listeners enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed interviewing you today. Thanks, Simon. It's been very enjoyable. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you've chosen us. We, of course, feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.